Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good evening, and good night. Welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that's in everyday technology. Sorry this episode took a little bit longer than usual. It was actually recorded in two parts, so it took a little bit longer to edit. With all that aside, today on the show, we have Will Sargent, who's Chief of Business Development at And Digital, a website development consultancy based in London. Business development and sales is an interesting topic in the world of technology, particularly what we do. Uh, So we get into kind of pricing structures, how they go about getting sales, what's most effective to them, the mistakes they've made and various things like that. It's a really interesting conversation. We could have gone on for hours, but alas, we can only fit it into one hour episode. So please enjoy Will Sargent. My first job actually in, in technology was as an intern. So I did business at Bath University. As part of that, you do kind of two six-month placements. And the first one, I went out to Florida, which was a fantastic place to, to live as a, as a kind of 19, 20-year-old, yeah. but not really in the field. Yeah, not really in the field that I wanted to go into, sort of niche financial insurance products. And then the second one was with a small company called Quedis, small small consultants, about 30 or people, really focused on the CIO. So the strap line actually was kind of friend of the CIO, which was not not something that was that sort of um, open in the market, right? I mean, the CIOs, most companies didn't have CIOs. No one had mm. a CTO sort of 15 years or so ago. And then the first role I had actually in, in, in tech was um, doing a rail franchise bid and look, working out the technology roadmap for that to 10 years that that company would run that rail franchise. Wow. That involved going up and down a railway line counting CCTV cameras and ticket machines and working out how many gates they would mm. need and all that kind of stuff. So that was my that was my first job in tech and then progressed through sort of project management and change management actually in different in different sort of areas, but predominantly in, in IT working under the kind of CIO CIO area. Um, and then moved into more account management and opening up new industries within within that consultancy. And then actually the founder of AND had founded the previous business, reached out to me, sent me a text message saying, you know, I need someone to to help drive BD. I always thought you were good at that. Do you want a coffee? So that was kind of where <laughs> that was where my journey started with AND mm. and then joined about four and a half years ago. And it's been a hell of a hell of a ride. Um, I think when I joined we were about a hundred people. BD was done with the sort of four or five senior people on a spreadsheet on a Monday morning. And taking up probably about half of our founders' time was spent on on growing the business and, and winning clients. Mm. Pretty normal, I think, for most yeah. kind of most sort of CEOs or founders of small businesses. And then I took that on, built the team, and then we've scaled it now. So there's about about uh, eighteen of us working in small small teams. Uh, one around the south, looking at kind of looking after London and our club in Reading, and then we've got one in the north, and then one in Edinburgh, and just open in Amsterdam as well. So it's really it's really grown and scaled that way, and that's and that's where I sit now. So yeah, been at four and a half years. I run client partnerships, which is all new business coming in, and key for us partnership is absolutely key. You know, working as a partner, not as a supplier, um, and making sure that we are the right partner and where we are great, and where we're not, we're very happy and and and, and open to say we're not because mm. that just causes problems for everyone down the line. Absolutely, and then really making sure we're set up for success from the start. That's that. That's my area, and then also um, a couple of years ago, became a director as well. So have that kind of wider 
insight into the business, which for me has been fascinating, you know, in terms of in terms of the kind of running of the business and the fiduciary duties and and where we're going from a kind of people perspective, client perspective, market perspective, all of those things. And and being through a external investment with BGF, which was which was quite an experience as well. So yeah, it's been it's been it's been a really fun ride. I had I had a lot more hair four and a half years ago. It was, it was, um, it was, it was definitely the case. But, uh, it's great fun. Wow. Well, there's so much to unpick there. But before we before we continue, BD, I understand, is business development, right? Yeah. And CIO, what's that? Uh, Chief Information Officer. There we go. Just to just to lay the land of acronyms. It depends on the level of on the level of the people who are listening to the show. You see, yeah, <laughs> we want to make sure that we're unpacking all of those algor- all of those algorithms. All it's early in the morning for us, <laughs> unpacking all of those uh, acronyms uh, for everybody as well. Yeah, well, I think I think for, we found it interesting because you've got you've got really there's three in the tech space. So you've got CIO, Chief Information Officer, CTO, Chief Technical uh, t- Technology Officer, and then CDO, Chief chief digital officer or sometimes chief data officer so it gets me it gets pretty complicated in every organization and then yeah you find other people pick up different areas as well mm. yeah there's uh it's it's um different in different organizations and it's also interesting kind of who looks after what and the reporting lines and actually who has the money to spend and who's doing a role of influencer mm-hmm. we see we see normally the chief digital in, digital officer is more of a influencer and trying to drive people to think differently um and then it's actually the chief information mm. officer and chief technology officer that actually kind of drive change and get stuff done it's typically what we see and they do seem to sit at different levels as well don't they i mean i've come across a couple of organizations where you do have a cio which is a more traditional you know uh, role that sits on the board and then actually having the cto that isn't on the board um and i've seen that on a couple of occasions yeah, that's pretty normal, actually. That's pretty normal. I think it's only we only we only see, I guess, if it's a digitally native organization that hasn't got you know a legacy of infrastructure or they haven't got physical shops or stores or whatever, right? And they really technology is their core focus. Most of those businesses, platform businesses, software as a service businesses, you know, di- digital first businesses. I mean, their organization basically is. How do you build that digital product, mm. which is a CTO's job, and then and then how do you sell it and serve it to your clients and your customers? And that's pretty much like the two halves of a business. <laughs> that's that's it really, you know, compared to running an estate of supermarkets or shops. Does that make it a little difficult from a business development perspective when you're trying to when you maybe don't know much about that organization and you're trying to find the right level to pitch at? Because obviously some organizations don't have a CIO at all, and it's the CTO that sits on the board. Yeah, I think I think you can pretty much um, you can pretty much work it out quite quickly by having the conversations mm-hmm. and understanding um, kind of who reports into who. Most organisations are not that hard to that that hard to navigate, right? Yeah. You get you get a few kind of behemoth behemoth organisations that have got different different departments. You know, think about someone like a like a BT, you know, British Telecom. Oh, yeah. It's just a nightmare. And then it's interesting if you ask if you ask the people you're talking to, you know, we were just trying to understand kind of how it all works and who works with who and everything. And they're like, yeah, we would as well. Um, so some of those organizations, they kind of they don't, they don't actually have their own org chart that makes sense. Right. But most of it, most of it, you can kind of map it out mentally quite, quite easily. 
oh, when I start on a project, I love to do a stakeholder map, especially in a big organization, because then you're trying to figure out who is actually responsible for what and who has an influence on what. And sometimes the spider web you draw can just be, uh, well, just fascinating. In terms of if you're trying to introduce change management, and obviously you've got a good change management background and we should go into that as well, but if you're trying to introduce some level of change into an organization, just presenting them with their spider web of a stakeholder map can be uh, can be a great trigger, a great starting point for a conversation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I want to go actually back because it's... It- there's so so much diversity i think in what in your kind of your your history and and how you kind of got to where you are now like it's early on in your career did you know that you wanted to get into business development or were you just fascinated by this idea of business and like organizational structure and things like that because you mentioned that you studied business at bath um and then you were on like doing travel kind of that travel audit that you managed to do like was was business development always in your sights from early on or did you kind of go with the flow did what you wanted to at the time and collect that kind of experience i think definitely definitely the second right Mm. i think you talk to people and i've interviewed a number of people that have gone they've just gone straight into sales jobs right Mm. and that i think is quite a difference between yeah, business development is a different thing to sales, right? Sales is very much, I've got a product, I've got a box, I've got a platform, I've got whatever, and I'm going to sell that. And I'm going to tell you how great this box is and what it can do and all those kind of pieces. And I think a lot of people do go, do go straight from uni into that, into that world. That wasn't, mm-hmm. that wasn't my route. I think, yeah, I think I had a kind of broader, a broader view, I guess, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know what I wanted to do going into university. Uh, the good thing about the degree that I did is it had quite a variety in the first year. So we did everything from like organisational design and HR through to marketing, through to accounting and finance and all those kind of pieces. And then you specialised every year in the area that you wanted that, that that you had more natural interest in. So that was kind of that was a breadth thing. And then I think I realised as I worked at the consultancy that. Yeah, my strength wasn't in kind of really detailed, getting in the detail, getting in delivery. That that just wasn't that wasn't my strength, right? Mm. My strength and my passion was in was in engaging with people, positioning something up front at a kind of higher level and really driving that kind of relationship perspective. And then interestingly, recently I did some uh, did some profiling. And there's loads of different things that you could do, right? But there's one that talks about um, talks about sort of five different stages, and it's called, it's called the Game Changer Index (GC Index), uh, which actually they do quite a lot of charity work, and they do it they do it for kind of school kids as well. But they talk about game changers who just come in and just change the whole thing completely, like le- you know, left field thinkers. Then you've got sort of strategy, which is like where are we going and a couple of years kind of timeline. And then you've got kind of implementers who put that into practice. And then you've got polishers who take something that is working and really refine it and and tweak it and make it work. And then in the middle, you've got kind of relationship connectors that just sort of bring other Mm. people together. And my, yeah, I'm kind of very much in that sort of, sort of strategy game changer space, right. Which um, is not, is sort of delivering stuff (laughs) and implementing it is, is not, the place that you need to be operating in if that's if that's how you how you 
see the world and 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 where you get your energy from mm. you need you know you need to map the work you're doing to the to to the stage that that in, interests you ultimately yeah mm. for sure in in terms of how you found your way you know through this to, to being the position you're in now you know you you've you've come out of university and you've gone into project management pretty much straight off the bat that's pretty much what I did, actually. I ended up going doing project management straight out of university. And I'm curious as to what it was that led you into doing that. What what was your decision around, your rationale around, I, I'm going to be a project manager? Because I have my own rationale. I'm curious to see if they if they overlap at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't, I'm trying to think. I don't really think it was a rationale. I think it was more, I wanted to be a consultant. Oh, really? That was, that was a view for me. I've always had... I've always taken a view that the scale of the company is actually what defines the majority of the elements of the culture. Mm. That, that for me, you know, there are different cultural elements and different elements of the industry that impact the business, how it operates, what you do, those kind of stuff, right? It's very different to be in a financial services organization or to be in working in retail or, or, or you know, whatever else. But I think the biggest variant is actually the scale of the organization. You know, if you go into a startup where it's three people or you go into a small business, which is kind of 30 to 100, or if you go into a kind of 30,000, 100,000 mm. person organization, right? I'm not a massive one for like process or kind of governance or politics or hierarchy. It's just not, it's not something that I naturally... You're a rule breaker. A rule breaker. No, <laughs> um, no, sadly, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say rule breaker at all, but um, I don't like I don't like living in those like highly structured environments, mm. right? And that for me is what you naturally get in those organisations. And I was actually talking to talking to a very good friend of mine who was at university with, and she's always worked. She's worked for like EY, Reckitt Ben Keys. I mean, massive organisations. And we were talking about it. She was like, I don't understand how you do your job because you don't know like what your your kind of grade is you don't know what your next role title is going to be you don't know what your like mm. pay is going to be you don't know all these things and I'm like yeah like I, I I don't know how you do it because I don't want to see that kind of clear boxed out path in front mm. of me I mm. want I want a lot more kind of fluidity in, in how in how it works in those pieces and she could never operate she just couldn't she couldn't she doesn't feel comfortable operating in a small organization where none of that is defined and it's all up in the air and it's up to you to make it happen and to find the path. And I could never work in an organization where it's all mapped out that way. Right. So yeah, to answer your question, it wasn't intentional. Mm -hmm. It just kind of happened that the, the consultancy was key for me because of the variety. And then the scale of organization was key for me because it has that less structured path and elements to it. Mm. Yeah. So I can see a lot of synergies here. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I did very much the similar sort of thing, actually, working with a small consultancy and picking up, you know, brands, those big brands as well, like, you know, the BBC and then uh, and, and others as well. Um, and I can see that you've done that with obviously working for Quedis and then uh, and, and then uh, North Highland and all those sort of things. And then you've picked up the brands underneath it, like Virgin and Sainsbury's and Glaxo and all those sort of things. I think it's really quite interesting that you've you followed that same sort of way because I don't think I I don't like working in a in that box either. I was never very good as a permanent employee in that regard. I much prefer to go into the bigger organisation and figure out how to 
uh, sort of get your hands in there and figure out how to fix the certain part you're trying to fix without worrying about the politics necessarily. Mm. Um, so I can see a lot of synergies there. But I think part of my interest in getting into project management was the the good thing about having a project really is you've got that sort of beginning, middle and an end and you're bouncing between different things and you're getting to experience a lot of variety um, without you know, putting yourself in a box where you work in a company for 10 years, you know, that works for someone, but it doesn't necessarily work for, uh, doesn't necessarily work for me. It sounds like you've got a similar sort of idea there. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that was my reflection when I left, when I left North Ireland, actually, I remember talking, I was kind of looking at promotion to the next kind of stage. And then I remember talking to my, to my uh, line manager at the time, and he was like, yeah, the thing is that, we've got this kind of six areas and actually when it comes to like interpersonal skills, business development, and um, I can't, what the other one was you're like, you know, S uh, SVP level, absolutely smashing it. But when it comes to delivery and technical capabilities, you're at this level. So we can't, you know, we can't promote you because of this. I just remember sitting back and going like, I need to find a different company that has different mm. boxes or has no, no boxes. <laughs> I just I wanted I wanted an organisation that didn't have that kind of level of structure, mm. but it's worth. I found I found it. Um, there's a few people at kind of different stages coming out of uni and kind of in their twenties that I've talked to recently over over the last couple of years that have that have gone into pure startups and I think I think it's worth being aware of those organisations that have absolutely mm -hmm. no structure because that that in itself also could be quite a difficult. A toxic environment mm. right yeah and i think there's i think i think there's a general kind of um societal view about startups and they're cool and you could do whatever mm. you want and all those kind of pieces mm. but there is there's there's also a lot a lot that doesn't work in those in those pieces mm. right and a lot of kind of you know unfairness and a lot of uh weird behaviors that you get from founders and a lot of politics that you get from um you know people falling out kind of two people that started it have fallen out or whatever mm. so actually there were i think there were two or three people that i was looking to hire and they chose to go and work for a pure startup and actually within the space of 18 months all three of them had come back and said <laughs> it didn't it didn't work out can we can we talk about can we talk about joining and yeah so i think it's i think it's that's definitely something i, I don't know about your experiences in a pure startup world but that's something to something some of the people to kind of be be aware of i guess well actually i'd, I'd have similarly i had a, a, a an experience that was not in a startup but um it was it was my first job in london and um i joined a small team within a, a larger organization and that small team operated like a startup well, there wasn't really a lot of governance there wasn't really a lot going on but we did some fantastic things um in the film space but what hit home for me just then was that lack of structure that I had coming out. I was fresh out of university. I was like, you know, maybe six months out coming out of university, joined this, joined this team, fantastic team works on some great projects, but I had no structure and fresh out of uni. I didn't, didn't see that I didn't I didn't um, pick up on the fact that I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. Ultimately, I got made redundant because of that. Um, but you know. I, I think that that sounds like that's, that could be something uh, that 
affects a lot of people sort of going into a startup, not having that structure and just not being able to really find their way. Obviously, some people it works, like, you know, um, some people can operate at that level, but I just couldn't. And like I say, ultimately got made redundant. So I have an yeah. experience like that, but not in a, not actually in a startup. I don't know about you, Chris. Um, yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a cultural thing, you know. As as you mentioned just before, Will, it's it, there's, there's different cultures in, in in businesses that run at different scales, and mm. you know, I've been doing quite a bit of work with startups relatively recently, and I think even just from a developer perspective, you tend to find a certain you, you find different types of developer almost, whether you're in a really corporate world or whether you're in a startup world. Those are the two extremes, and then there's the one in the middle that kind of flexes between. Uh, you know, big corporate world and small startup, and I, f- I find that 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 space in the middle is the sweet spot where you're picking up the new technologies. You're picking up. It's probably not just in development. I, I'd say it's in in all parts of the business. You, you're picking up different techniques from various a variety of different companies, and if you're if you're good at it, then you can share them at different levels. Versus like you know the person who's in the startup that. Maybe they've always worked in startups and they're just a hacker in a way. You know, they'll throw stuff together, they'll pull stuff together, they'll try and make stuff happen. And I think that's a great sort of, you know, bias for action, essentially. They'll just get on and do stuff um, versus the the um, the enterprise level where you tend to find that people have maybe got stuck in a rut, but, you know, they know like the big complicated things that they need to do to, to you know, they know all the process, they've got all of the rhythm in that. And... The two worlds will never necessarily meet, but if you can flex between the two, then you can share the knowledge. You can help enterprises be more agile. Mm. You can be, help startups be a bit more, uh, be a bit more process driven. And you know, a little bit of process helps certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I find it interesting that you can probably split them into those three categories. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's something I've been noticing a lot recently. Because I mean, I'm I'm thinking all the way back from your your uh, business study at Bath into your project management stuff. Um, I, I I think that they, these these individuals that go straight into to sort of sales and business development straight from university. Oh, I, I I don't know many of those people, right? And I would imagine that they probably don't respect or understand um, a business and the way it operates and how a business needs to operate the the way that you do no completely i mean i think i think the one thing that that i've kind of realized probably in the last year or so i think is we ourselves at and and others use business development probably as a too broad a term mm. and you can cut it different ways but there's really there's really kind of three three buckets of activity within business development right so the first one is relationship building engaging with people building relationships network all that kind of stuff, right? The second area is around shaping an approach. So how are you going to solve a problem? Who's going to do what? What tech are you going to use? All of, all of those pieces. And then the third one is is getting getting the work closed, the kind of commercials, negotiation, getting getting it, it sort of signed off and, and, and ready to go, right? Or getting it greenlit, as, as a lot of people call it. And those actually are three very different activities and they're three very different skill sets. And what we're looking at doing is saying to people, look, you know, you might be great at one or two and crap at the other. So actually, like, set up in a set up in a structure where you're doing what you're good at and other people are doing what they're good at. And then the other piece is, you know, like great tech doesn't get built just because it's great tech. Mm. It gets bit it gets built because 
someone has positioned it and why it's important for the business, why it's important for mm. the colleagues, for the clients, and ultimately, like why why it makes money. Mm. Because there is this kind of idealistic view that great tech should be built because it's great. That's not that's not how ninety nine percent of businesses make decisions. Mm. And if it doesn't get built and it doesn't get put in the hands of a user, then it doesn't really matter how great the idea was because it's 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 never come to life. Mm. And that for me is is how I see BD. Right? It's it's not an evil sales thing. It's about how do you help more people solve more problems more effectively and make it happen. That that's very much how I see BD. So when you uh, when you're doing that work, you're doing those three different activities. Do you structure that as a as a team? Do people do do people do you have like three people working together on a on a on a BD development activity? Yeah, everything in our everything in our business mm. is teams. So every opportunity has a lead and a support. And there's you know it's kind of old adage that you know it's always better to have like two two pairs of ears and two pairs of eyes, right? And I think that that works really well. So everything is teams, and not and not just two people. Like we have a kind of pipeline. We talk about it every week as our as our kind of gig you know we have the team in the south and the north and they talk about every week and every two weeks we come together and share what we what we're working on like i really can't move the conversation forward with this client and people will go well actually you know their competitor just contacted us so you might want to drop them a note and let them know because people find that interesting or oh i used to work with this person that's just moved there so you build those kind of connections you help people kind of navigate navigate and work through. So I think, yeah, that teaming stuff is absolutely, absolutely vital. I'm also curious in terms of like the sales process. Um, for me, I was running a consultancy as we were going through things like Brexit and, you know, the economic factor of actually trying to sell stuff. I mean, we've gone from, 20, from 2016 having Brexit through into having a pandemic in the recent years. The last five years has been incredibly turbulent from an economic uh, perspective. But at the same time, you guys have grown to a thousand people. So, you know, I found that as we were going through the Brexit stuff, there was a there was a reduction in the amount of money that was available because people weren't sure what was going on. But then all of a sudden people kind of realized that the government was never going to make any decision. And frankly, was probably still, I don't even know the status of a Brexit deal anymore, but um, we're in a, we're in a position now where companies kind of went, Oh, sod it. We're just going to spend the money anyway. And I think the, the pandemic was, you know, had that initial contraction when people didn't know what was going on. A whole lot of people were furloughed. You know, we're starting to open things up again now. Have you seen this sort of wave of business development? Has that, is that something you guys have seen as well? Yeah, I think, um, I, yeah, there's a couple of thoughts on that. It's a really good question. I think, I think from a, the last 12 months, I mean, it was very, it was very tough 12 months ago, right? I think mm. everyone, everyone was just cutting everything. And I think every business was almost kind of, most businesses canceled all direct debits. <laughs> you know, they just served notice <laughs> on all, all third parties, all partners, yeah. you know, they stopped, they stopped paying their rent just on principle, whether or not they had the money or not. Right. I think most, most companies just went into, went into absolute kind of financial lockdown, which was, which was pretty standard across the board. Yeah. We saw, we saw a few people kind of building out new products and, and testing new stuff in market. So we worked with a uh, company called World Remit. Um, so they they wanted to build a new product. They, they specialize in kind of sending money around the world, basically. And a guy that came from Africa originally you know, 
people that work in, for example, the UK and send money home were t- typically getting ripped off on the exchange rate and all those kind of pieces. So he built he built a fantastic business around around that, and we built some new stuff for them, got it to market in five weeks that allowed people to do you know get money back to their family without having to um, show ID and all those kind of pieces. So some really kind of innovative products in that space. We've also built you know the vaccine the vaccine um, passport that Iata are, are taking forward and is kind of a major one for the airlines. So we picked up some some really interesting work on the back of it, and then people came back in January and you know they had budgets agreed, and 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 and, and they were going to go and go hard because I think what most businesses have seen is is um, you know actually whilst this this situation has created either opportunity or it's created and shown significant issues in a business and everyone has to adapt and change and do it at a pace that they had never done it before. And I think that's, that, that's what it's driven. And I think we've seen business leaders, you know, some of, some of the more traditional organizations are perhaps still trying to work out what, what this, what this new world means for them and, and, and those kind of pieces. But the vast majority of businesses have, have, have worked it out and they want to make it happen now. And those are the kind of ambitious ones. Mm. And I think for And, I mean, our, our founder is um, a, f- a phenomenal individual in many ways. And one of the things that I think is kind of key to his personal ethos that, that I've I've kind of copied and adopted in life, not just in work, right? But is like there are things that you can influence, um, and there are things that you can't influence. And don't spend thirty seconds worrying about stuff that you can't. Just focus on the things that you can you can influence, right? Mm. And that's that's kind of it's 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 a personal kind of kind of mantra and approach I've taken. And I think that's things like things like Brexit, you know, things like you know, some of the risks around kind of COVID and those pieces. You know, you can spend days and weeks worrying about different scenarios and what's going to happen, or you can just focus on what you can influence and crack on and, and, and kind of get going. Mm, and yeah. that and that that that's what we've done as a business. And for me as an individual, right? And I think that's that's paved a really a really good way ahead for us. Let's talk about pricing models. The kind of groups I was following, they're always talking about value-based pricing, value-based pricing, you know, go really high um, and see, as, uh, you know, get as much as you can essentially um, because that's the value that that client has. Like 10 grand yeah. to one person might be, 10 million to another person you know and they 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 behold the same sort of value to that piece of work so which we, we you know we tried doing that but to be honest the cognitive strain of saying we're going to try and do it for this amount is um is pretty difficult but the level i think the level of clients that we're getting um they often want fixed prices but um in in the in the interim we're kind of um sort of not there yet and just going yeah, yeah. hey we don't know what the budget is keep paying us and we'll keep working you know yeah i think it's an interesting one i think the um i mean we've like we've always talked about being open to different commercial models and the fact that we're privately owned and quite small means we can do that mm. the challenge is uh, and and often often when i talk to you know talk to clients and they're going yeah we're really interested in new models and it's like yeah so are we but Nine times out of ten, it's it's from a client perspective that it's just it's just too difficult to make it work, mm-hmm. right? And value based pricing is it's a difficult one. Actually, it's interesting. Chris is saying you got the builders. I think London builders have started doing value based pricing. 
you know, I was talking to a friend that did up did up uh, did up a house and turned it into a few different flats, and it's like the quotes range from like eighty thousand to three hundred and fifty thousand, and, and it's mm. the same amount of work. But some guys have gone in there and gone, well, he's going to make he's going to make half a million quid on this, so I'm going to make my three fifty, and he's going to be okay, right? Mm. Which is which is an odd system. I'm not I'm not quite sure it it works, um, mm. and those things get complicated. And risk risk reward is is one that people talk about a lot, but what they normally mean is they just want risk. They're happy mm. to like not pay you if it doesn't work, but they're not happy to pay you the upside if it does. Exactly. And we found that. So, I mean, that's why we stick nine times out of 10. It's just standard flat T&M. And it's easy for everyone. Everyone knows what they're, what they're getting, how it works, how it calculates, how you can control it. It's very easy to kind of, you know, go, well, I've got X number of people, this number of days is going to cost this, right? And you've got, mm. you get into a pretty standard run rate on it as well. Mm. We occasionally do a fixed, a fixed kind of fixed cap TNM is probably the one we use in that situation more. So Interesting. they, they know it won't go above a certain price and they're not going to end up with a bill they can't afford. But in terms of what gets delivered, that that's worked out and, and kind of driven in the, in the sprint cycle. Mm. so it's kind of it's it's that's kind of balance that we we tend to use more more, you know more often than not yeah because the way because the way we we've i say we've been taught right just to just to cut any ambiguity so i'm part of this group uh of professionals called the future and that they start out as an education thing talking about um pricing marketing and all this kind of basically their niche is taking freelance designers and turning them into businesses, you know, really making them think about these models and, and the stuff that we'll be talking about, right? Yeah. So when they 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 promote like the fixed, uh, sorry, well, the the value based pricing thing. So a lot of that was kind of um, drilled into me almost, and I've experimented with it. But it actually starts in the sales process, and it's it's asking the salesman uh, or woman to. Um, to actually get a feel of what is what the kind of value is of that project to that client by sort of asking various questions around, um, you know, like financially, what does this mean to you? You know, what are you earning now in your process? You know, whatever it is, your current website, let's use websites as an example. What are you earning now on your website? What are you hoping to achieve in revenue from this, this update that you want or this app that you're releasing? And if they turn around and say, well, we're earning, you know, 50 million or whatever, and we're hoping to hit um, 200 million, um, then you know that that is 150 million that you've got to play with sort of thing. You say, well, if we, if we get that, then let's say we just take 10% of that or something, then, then you've got your value. And I know they're arbitrary numbers, but just, just for the point of, um, you know, ease of maths, to be honest, (laughs) Um, it, it starts in the sales process. So actually, you know, do you ever get that? Um, no, not really. Um, We did, we did a, uh, a similar revenue share with a client and, and we agreed that, you know, we'd have a certain element of the fee covered, which is effectively our costs. And then mm. if they hit above a revenue target and it was quite a big kind of, you know, household name, they hit above a revenue target on the, on the uh, digital channels, then we would have a particular kind of cut of that because we built this product that was, that was delivering it. Right. Mm-hmm. And what quickly, what quickly happened and, I, and it's happened a number of times before digital in other worlds is they quickly either it doesn't work and you know they don't get fired because 
they haven't they haven't kind of you know hasn't delivered and, and those kind of pieces and they're not paying a big bill or it mm-hmm. works and then they suddenly realize that they're giving away 10 percent. i mean in that situation those people if they ended up with a website that went from 50 to 200 they're not you know they might be happy but they're also not going to be happy paying you 15 million quid for the privilege i can see the premise of it and i think the premise works in certain situations but i think getting to that complete sort of you know fictional utopia of of completely value-based pricing it just doesn't work i think mm. anchoring which is kind of what what you talk about there which is going well you know yeah. you're going to make 150 million on this so it doesn't really matter what you spend on here that that anchors that anchors you know even if we cost you 10 percent, it'll be 15 million that anchors a 15 million number so if you come in and it costs two then it looks cheap right yeah so there's a bit of anchoring in that and then the other one is and we find this quite a lot with the technical approach we're going to take and the solution we're going to build is putting that in the context of the organization scale and maturity mm-hmm. and we struggle with that sometimes right because everyone wants to build like gold-plated fantastic massive scalable technology and a lot of organizations don't need that you know and i've had mm-hmm. situations where we go in and sort of you know people will look at a look at a um a product an idea and come back and go you know come back with an approach that's going to take you know, 12 months to build something and it's going to cost 3 million quid and it's going to have two teams on it for all this period. And you go, well, hold on, this business only turns over 5 million pounds. Like they're not, they're not going to spend 3 million on their website or on this new digital product. You've got to set what you're building for, for the context of the organization, for the budget that they have, for what they want to achieve. Mm. And quite often, you know, quite often organizations don't, don't need to spend all that money up front. I think, I think often what happens is agencies come in and say, yeah, we can build that for 30K, 50K, 100K. Mm-hmm. And they think they're getting, they think they're getting the end product. They're not, they're getting, they're getting an initial MVP that might get out to market. But if this thing grows, they're going to have to chuck it in the bin and start again. Mm-hmm. And that I think is where we struggle quite a lot where, um, you know, clients will go out and they'll get those kind of quotes from agencies and um, they think they're getting the end, the end product, but they're not, they're just getting something that's kind of, a bit boshed together and will do for now mm. and that's and that's great in some situations but in many it isn't and mm. that i think for us is part of the part of the challenge i think that i think there is a mix between tnm and this value-based pricing like you you won't you know you might go to one client and charge 500 a day for a developer or you might go to another client and charge a thousand two hundred for a you know for a dev a day and understanding whether the, if they hold the va- where they hold the value and if if they're willing to pay you know a thousand two hundred for for just one dev um you know per day i think it's risky it's a, yeah it's interesting you say that i mean we just don't do that right we have we have a flat rate yeah. for everyone yeah and everyone pays the same rate and i think that that's a real challenge if you if you do that if you do those kind of swings on on a couple of fronts because you know, most clients know what they're paying for. They they know mm. what the market is. They will have spoken to a few people. They'll talk to other people in their community, whatever else. Like, and they will realize mm. that you know, if they, if you pay twelve hundred a day, you are expecting someone that is either you know, depending on on who you're buying. If you're buying mm. from the big four, if you're buying from the big four, then you're expecting a grad. But if you buy from you know, <laughs> a smaller organization, or you're buying kind of direct contractors, you are you are expecting someone that can either, you know, work pretty autonomously and build absolutely awesome awesome software. I mean that is that that is top end technical, or that is mm. kind of 
top end stakeholder management, coordinating, getting people on board, working with difficult stakeholders, you know, driving new ways of working. You are expecting someone that is really delivering, you know, delivering a lot for that price point. And if you put someone that is worth five hundred pounds and the client's paying twelve hundred, they will expect twelve hundred worth of value from that individual, mm. regardless. And that I think sets up that person for failure. And then the other element is it's such a small world, mm. you know, and, and if you, it's almost like lying. Once you start lying, you've got to remember what lies you told, right? Which is just, this is a stupid <laughs> place to get to. If you, yeah. you know, like we, we have clients that move to other organizations or they turn up here or they've used us in the past or their friend or their ex-colleague has used us. Like people know, people know what our kind of price point is and they know what, what we charge. And, and I think you would, if we ended up with a CEO or well, you ended up with a CEO you know, and he found out that, you know, John was 500 quid to the last guy and you're charging him 1200, I think you're going to be out the door pretty quick, mm-hmm. which is understandable. Right. So I think, I think it's, yeah. I think it's, um, it's a bit of a Pandora's box. that doesn't need to be opened in my view, mm. but that's just, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what you think, Chris, but. Well, I was wondering how that works for you when you've got, when you, you know, you talked about um, just before we were talking, you, you were talking about, um, having a, a rev share with an organization where you've got a fixed price, how does that then tie in with a, with, with a rev share? Do you, what, 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 where do you move on the price? Do you drop the day rate? Does it, does it, does it change around a little bit? Um, I mean, we've only done it, we've only done it once and it, and it didn't work because oh, the okay. rev, like, because the actual product went really, really well and it, and it over exceeded. Um, and then they, you know, we, we kind of did the rev share and, and they took a step back and was like, oh, no, no, we, like, we don't want to pay you this much. <laughs> mm. that, that's so unfair. It's fine if it doesn't do well, but if it does do well, then yes, we're, you know, we're, we're reluctant to hand over the cash. Did you that's tell terrible. him that? Did you tell him it was unfair that they did that? So give, that's unfair, that. <laughs> Not paying us the money. <laughs> I think it was an interesting conversation. It wasn't one that I was involved with, but I think um, I think there was a misunderstanding potentially on how on how the whole mechanism worked, mm. and their view was almost either either they hadn't quite worked it out, and and therefore it was much more than they'd expected. But based on what they think they thought it was going to be, like it just didn't it just didn't work for us. So I think. I mean, yeah, it's whether it's unfair or not. There's also, you know, there is a, there is a lot about the customers king and those kind of pieces, right? I mean, it's the same. Yeah. Every every organization has, um, you know, has anti poaching kind of clauses in the contract, but it, it doesn't. It never it never stops people from poaching, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And and, and we and, you know we've we had clients in the past, not not an and, but in in my previous world that have gone well, you know. We spend a lot of money with you, so you're really going to walk away from that because because Tim has joined us, you know. And that happens mm. once or twice, maybe. If it starts to happen more than that, then it's a very difficult conversation because mm. that for us is just that is they are red flags of a typical traditional supplier buyer relationship, mm. which is not what we want want to have or look for, right? We look for partnerships, which is why which is why my yeah. team's called client partnerships, not not you know sales or supplier sales or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But that um, on that TNM side of things, then so the TNM tends to work quite well for you guys. But you you're, you're putting in a, a a flat a flat rate and obviously a range of skills within that flat rate. Is that still how still your pricing model? That was the pricing model we were using at TalkTalk. 
Yeah, it is completely. Yeah. And I don't think you guys have ever done like a, a tiered system because the, the last consultancy I worked in, we had a tiered system where, you know, you'd have like a junior is 450 and that goes up to like, you know, the executive team that are in that sort of 1250 sort of mark. Um, you know, as you were talking before, in terms of the range, you're, you're, um, you're setting people up for success based off the actual price that you're, you're, um, you're, you're farming them out farming them out that's probably the wrong term but putting them out into the businesses um you know because you've actually already tiered the pricing so you can there's some indicative value uh some indicative um productiveness within that uh range what do you think the merits are of of each one you know there's the sort of um that tiered system versus that uh that blended one and do you have organizations asking for well i don't i don't like this blended model is there a way that we can have a tiered model you they must we must ask those sort of yeah, questions yeah. yeah we get asked we get asked it a bit i think i think there are there are some there are some organizations in a naturally that have an aversion to having kind of younger or, or, or less less kind of experienced individuals in their teams right they just they mm. just want they just want senior people there are other organizations that have their own grad schemes and they have a number of people or, you know some of the big ones have got apprentice schemes and all those kind of elements i think there's one element to it which is understanding the value that different people at different stages in their career can bring to a team and and it's that sort of element of diversity mm -hmm. right and a lot of our a lot of our younger people like we're all you know they're not all they're not always younger as well right we have we have individuals who are at our junior levels who are doing career changes who are who are at different stages in their lives so those people who have got you know less development experience at, at the earlier stages they could bring a load of other elements to the to the to, to the table right so typically they haven't been conditioned by 15 20 years of working in the office place so they they bring they often bring more creative solutions right because they're not encumbered by sort of organizational thinking and they haven't had that kind of creativity beaten into them right which is the same theory you get between mm. between a child and an adult who's kind of gone through life and told you can't do this you can't do that so they bring that kind of creative edge often they are actually more experienced in progressive tech stacks because they've learned them at university, they've driven forward in those pieces. So actually, when it comes to what well, we find when clients are using more progressive tech stacks, actually our junior people have got more experience in terms of working in those pieces. Hmm. And then I think also there's a kind of energy they bring, energy they bring to the team. Um, you know, they're kind of young and really hungry and they want to progress and they want to learn and they want to share and they want to do those kind of things. I was talking to a client actually once and he was like, we had, uh, he worked for a um, online retailer of kind of white goods and electrics. And it was one of their junior team members that had kind of, I think he'd kind of um, grown up in a sort of, sort of a single mum household and, and those kind of pieces. And his view was like, we're building all these products, but actually, like, what about a product that allows you to say that you are a single mum? And actually, the most difficult thing for you in this whole process is, someone that can take away your old fridge freezer because you can't carry it and you haven't got anyone that's big enough or strong enough in the house mm. to do it right so actually why don't we build a piece that allows them to say that actually they need help removing the old good and they need to return it with this one and they need to you know all, all of those types of things like they would never have come up with that if they'd had one demographic of people in their team mm. so i think that i think that mm. kind of diversity is is really key i guess that blend only really works though when you've got you know here are five people that we're going to put in or ten people that we're going to put in 
because uh, obviously the, the experience I had was with a much smaller consultancy and you know you've got to cover your costs more directly and I I, I, um, I recognize what you're saying in terms of getting into the detail the nitty-gritty of what each role provides and actually some of the conversations you'd have were like well actually we think you need a senior person here rather than a junior and you, you're starting to have a conversation about how much can they afford versus what actual skill set they need and that probably isn't a conversation you want to have. You probably do want to have, like you're saying, oh, we have the people, but don't worry about the price. The price is just this, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we'll we'll find yeah. you the right blend of people that make up this team. But um, you probably do need the volume, right? Yeah, yeah, you need, yeah, you need you need some volume to make mm. it work, right? From that perspective, um, but you're right. I mean, it takes all of uh, it takes all of that wasted effort and time of trying to work out and then arguing, well, you know, this only needs four years. Well, actually it needs six years experience and that's going to cost more. Yeah. And then every, every role is, is debated about and kind of, you know, challenged and you've got to put people forward and you do all that kind of stuff. You take that away and just have a bit more, a bit more openness and trust about it. I think it works. It works in a much more fluid nature. It's also much easier. Clients like it. it's much easier to uh, forecast. Mm. So, well, yeah, yeah. I need, I need, yeah, I need six people for this period. So it's going to cost me X, not well, I need three of this. I mean, like some competitors of ours have got like, you know, 35, 40 rates on their rate. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just quite a challenge to do those pieces. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we found it, we found it works. It works well from that basis. And actually a couple of times we've kind of been forced to use a rate card and then actually we've gone back to the single blended rate. Yeah. We tried to, um, simplify our rate card as much as possible um this is for a project management consultancy so we were down to i think just five rates which made life a little easier to explain but obviously we didn't have anywhere near the volume of, of you guys and so you know there's a certain amount of overheads that we had to cover and i actually assume i could be wrong but with the blended rate um presumably that gives you a better position when you have people on the bench as well would, am I right in thinking that, or am I not? Am I not connecting the dots quite right there? Yeah, I'm not sure it makes much difference. I mean, we have, we have, uh, you know, uh, um, a commercial model built for our clubs, which is based on, you know, it's based on. Uh, we only, we, only, we have two rates in our clubs. So we have a we have a, a slightly higher rate for SMEs practice group. We call them internally. Um, mm. We typically are kind of part time or upfront. I mean, you basically, you know, you, it is it is we've got. 60 um uh, 72 um individuals on this rate and we've got 12 individuals on this rate and the expected utilization during the year is you know whatever it is 60 something percent mm. right so that's a number of billable days we expect everyone to be billable you take that average you times it by you know 70 72 and 12 and then you get your overall expected revenue right and then and then you've got your cost base and then you've got your kind of central stuff so it's run they run independently as budgets like that, um, and it all kind of comes together. See, I think that I think that's simpler. You see, from what I was doing. I mean, obviously, we were a very small consultancy. We were about um, fifteen people, um, which was actually a blend of contractors. Uh, you know, we had a, a big network of contractors that we could reach out to uh, for when we had certain roles, and then a, a small section. You know, about just under ten, I suppose, uh, permanent people, and yeah. the costs were more direct in that scenario 
So the margins were finer. <laughs> so it was it was more of like okay, well, if we don't get these two people out straight away next next month, then we're um, then we're in a trouble. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was more the, there was probably more calculations than than what you're saying because yeah, although yeah. although they're the same sort of calculations, we'd probably have to go into far more detail because we had a more defined rate card and because we had more exact expenses to cover rather than having that blended rate. You know, there's a lot of, there's going to be a fair number of our listeners out there that work for a small consultancy or have their own consultancy um, that were probably in a similar situation to to, to Sam and I actually, uh, where, you know, getting to a position where you have, uh, where you're built for scale in the same in in the sense that, that you're talking about, um, that's probably quite a difficult position to get into. Um, I'm saying that from, from a point of view of someone who was yeah. who was not in that position because we we end up, you know, you, you go through these different growth phases as a startup, right? When you're trying, especially when you're trying to sell to clients, and we were quite lucky in in my scenario because we had a lot of repetitive clients and the business had existed for you know over a decade because it was a business I joined. Uh, Magic Milestones. This is you can go and look at Magic Milestones. Um, they're a great consultancy, but I don't work for them anymore. Um, the the in in terms of in terms of getting from that position where you're watching the margin, you're watching the uh, the, the profit, not because you want to take the money out of the business, because God knows we didn't take the money out of the business. It's um, it's how do you how, once you're in that mindset of, of focusing on 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 the margin so much to get to a scale where you could not think about it is very difficult. It's a very difficult growth curve, I think, to get from sort of 10 to 15 people to to 30 and then to mm-hmm. 60 and then to 100 and then to where you guys are now at 1,000. I, I wondered if... Um, have you gone through that trigger point where you've had to make that change before? Because, I mean, from, from the stuff we've talked about, I think you are in that position where you're able to... Um, you know, you, you do have the power of and behind you, of course. But have you gone through that transition where you've had to figure out how you get over that growth curve? I mean, we had, yeah, we had perhaps a slightly different position to start with. And then obviously we've, we've had the external funding now as well. All right. Okay. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I wasn't here, I wasn't here on the really kind of, really kind of early, early mm. doors. Right. I think, I think there's an element in there in terms of uh, courage is the right word or not, but there's an element of kind of just, just backing and going for it. Mm. And there's an element of of balancing kind of losses and those kind of pieces. I mean, we've like, yeah, we are our years kind of come come down to quite a fine margin, right? Mm. I think a lot of those businesses, um, I think I think you have to you have to make quite a conscious decision early doors. Like, are you is this going to be built for? Is going to be built to turn over a, a residual kind of profit every year, right? And and create create mm. an income for the founders or whatever mm. or is this stuff built is this stuff built for scale and is it built for scale because you want to make an impact and you want to do something different or because you want an end exit point which is where you get where you get the piece right because businesses value are either a multiplier of their revenue which is normally not not much more in professional services it's kind of not much more than a, a year's revenue or it's a multiplier of profit so I think you need to kind of you need to make a conscious decision about one or the other. And I remember I was talking to a small, a smaller business, um, probably kind of 
about 30 to 50 people, um, probably a little bit bigger actually, maybe 50, 60. But we were talking about growing and growth and 10xing and that kind of stuff. But then the conversation always came back to managing the margin mm. and making sure that those numbers were hit. And, and it was kind of, it was, it's just a mindset thing, right? And I, and mm. I talked to people about and, and my perhaps poor metaphor is, you know, I've been in businesses that are growing at sub 10%. And it's it's all it's it's like going down the motorway at seventy miles an hour, trying to be aerodynamic to get a great MPG, right? It, it's all about fuel efficiency. We're doing one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty. Let's just keep the wheels on, and that's just a completely different, completely different mindset, right? And that maybe maybe that's a poor metaphor. Maybe, maybe that's just how I see it. But I think I think it's a mindset thing, maybe. Mm. Are you are you meaning to, or, or or do you need to take these sorts of? this sort of awareness when you are sort of uh, talking to a client or, or negotiating a deal or whatever, are you, are you in a position where you're, you're having to think about these sorts of things when it comes to the profitability of a project versus, you know, um, I'm just trying to think about how, what, what's going through your, your head as you're negotiating with a client and whether uh, your whether your sole focus is on understanding the problem or whether it's the profitability or whether it's the ability that and is able to deliver um what's kind of going through your mind during those chats i think maybe maybe that's where the blended rate and the tnm comes in because it's just simple right there's not mm, yeah and there isn't there isn't there isn't much negotiation there isn't i mean we've got you know we've got very large clients that you know might have you know 30, 40, 50 people working with them at any one given time. I mean, they're paying, you know, they, they get a couple of percent discount off, mm. off the flat rate. That's it, right? And we've got, you know, and we're not charging anyone above above the flat rate. And, you know, the vast majority of people just pay pay the rate. And I always say, you know, this is not this is not a typical consulting rate card where it's overinflated so that you can go at every proposal and say, we've given you a 40% discount. Aren't you special? Mm. Which is rubbish because <laughs> no one's ever paid the rate card. But we just try and keep it simple. Right. And then there isn't really, there isn't really a negotiation. You know, occasionally we might, we might invest a bit up front to prove ourselves. If it's not a relationship that we've done before, we might choose to invest some extra people. If it's a skill set that we really want to build up and it's a new technology or it's a new area or a new product that's, you know, that's kind of driving it that way. We might invest some people if we've got them available and, and, and they can learn and they can help and add value. But, you know, nine times out of 10, it's, it's, it's just a simple, look, this is what we do. This is how we do it. This is, this is the value of the model, you know, accelerate the build and build the capability. And if you want mm -hmm. that, great. And here's, and, and this is a very fair price for it. If you don't want mm. it, then that's not a problem either. And I think if you do that, it takes away. There's not all of this like negotiation and trying to work out. You know, well, if I put this person on, we, we just don't do that. It's very, mm. very simple. And maybe, and maybe that's what allows us to then focus on actually solving the problem and 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 being the best partner, right? It just takes. Mm. So I point earlier, it takes all of that rubbish out of the out of the conversation. Mm. The productization is something. Uh, lots of businesses aspire for in, in so many different ways, whether it's their onboarding of their new employees or something like that. And to 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 somewhat productize um, your offering is a huge overhead when it comes to sales and negotiation. Because I'm not at that level where you know, as as Chris was alluding to earlier, like um, 
we're not at that level where we can, we can offer the same kind of productization that you guys are. You know, we, we have to, it's either in, you know, I've experimented with, you know, a package, like an MVP package, you know, but it just, yeah, yeah. it becomes so difficult to, uh, to do that. So what, what do your, what do your, what do your uh, conversations with your clients typically involve then if it's not, you know, half of it is around negotiating the price or, or everyone's just anxious to get to the price. But if that's kind of completely cleared from any kind of negotiation, what are you talking about and, and how are you making those sales or how, or how are you converting that client? I hate, I hate to talk to them like as if they're a piece of meat, but, um, <laughs> you know, how do you how you form that partnership? How do you form that partnership? I'm trying to think of the because sales sales is a dirty word, you know, or it's 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 led to believe it's a bit of a dirty word, and and we're trying mm. to we're trying yeah, to solve yeah. problems and help people in partnerships here, not. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I agree. I think. I mean, for me, it's it's just it is helping more people solve more problems more effectively. That's that that's, mm. that, that's what it is, right? And we talked about it mm. talked about it earlier. It's really yeah. The, the clients want to get this stuff done they want to build these products they want mm -hmm. they want to make this happen and 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 you're making you're making it you know you're, you're making it easier for them to make it happen right mm -hmm. so i think i think it's a good thing right from from my perspective i don't i don't worry about that at all i also don't think that that we do any kind of underhand mm. sales tactics or anything else so i don't i don't i don't morally i'm very comfortable with how we operate and what we do because i think we're mm -hmm. doing it in in everyone's best interest but that's a, that's a side point I think for us, there's a couple of things. One is one is where it starts. You know, for us, it's it's a pretty much entirely relationship-led funnel of, of of new work, um, and it comes from kind of three buckets pretty evenly, which is the relationships of our of our Andes, previous buyers who've used us in the past, and then and then our kind of network and network. So our alliances we've got with the big with the big providers, with um, kind of uh, tech tech specialists, and then consultancies that do complementary stuff but but don't have the same skills that we have right and, and, and we kind of go go together and they make recommendations so if it's relationship led everyone kind of knows who you are and what you do mm. and there's an element of trust because someone they trust like either either they've worked with you before and you've delivered and and, and, and they know you're good or someone they trust trusts you and you've delivered for them so you've got you've got that kind of element of trust and, and the element of pre-qualification because if someone goes Someone goes to their friend, I'm looking for a, you know, 250 quid a day offshore provider to just churn this thing out for me. Then they're not going to recommend and because they know that's not what we mm. do, right? So you've got an element mm. of pre-qualification already. And then the first conversation is really, like we call it listen and learn. It's all about listening to where they are, how they're set up, what their problems are, what they want to achieve, what success looks like for them, where they are in terms of scale, maturity, having their own capability, is a really big thing for us. If, if there's mm -hmm. not their own capability, they don't want to build their own capability. We we're unlikely to be the right partner. Of course. So we really understand. We really understand kind of where they are as an organization, as a team, what they're trying to build, how shaped that thinking is. All of those kind of pieces. Just just understand it. Listen and understand it. Right. And a good conversation, a good first conversation is where you don't really say a lot. The first, the first, the first two thirds of the conversation is just listening and, and asking questions and understanding. And mm -hmm. then we typically would give a, a kind of short overview of who we are, which for us follows quite a kind of logical flow. So it's sort of this is this is why we exist as an organization. This is how we see the world. This is this is what we want to achieve and and our kind of mission and reason for being at a very high level. We then talk about kind of what we do and how we're set up. 
what we've done that might be relevant to them, either industry or actually more often in terms of their their scale and their maturity. So mm. something, you know, give, give them an example that brings it to life, you know, rather than talking theory or actually, you know, we were talking to this this person who was in the same seat as you, very similar seat to you, and this this is the path and the journey we went on together, um, just to make it real and bring it to life. And then we talk about what makes us different. And 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 I pointed to earlier, you know, spoke to a number of clients, a number of old, old clients, and also people that chose not to partner with us um, about why. And we've already really boiled it down into five five reasons, five areas. And it's good to talk about that because. Either they'll resonate with someone and they'll go, right, that works for me, or I'm not interested in that. So maybe you're not the right partner. And then and then mm. it's a it's kind of like it's kind of like dating, right? It's a kind of two-way, it's a two-way mm. street, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, we've yeah, we've articulated that. And I think that that for us, it's kind of I don't I don't we're we're not great at it. We're not amazing. We could be better, we should be better. But I think a lot of people struggle to really articulate like what how are you different? Like mm. wait, like why should I why and where should I partner with you over someone else? Mm. And I think we've done we've done quite a bit on that. And I think that that's that that's quite key. So can you share can you share with us where it has gone wrong and why? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know. Like where do you guys fail on the selling? <laughs> um, I think we there's a, there's a couple of points. One is probably on that qualification up front and around. I was I was joking about it actually with someone in the team uh, last week. I say it like that. I'm mean, genuinely like I found it amusing. Most people wouldn't, but well, you have to you have to laugh st- to stop from crying at some point. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, we were talking about we talked about RFPs um, mm. and responding to RFPs and, and 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 understanding like where that person had heard of us, why they come to us, and those kind of elements, and then really understanding who else they're talking to. And, mm. and who else they're thinking about in that space because you know we've we've done a number of rfps particularly in the early part of this year and i think a lot of organizations they had their plans the budgets got signed off at christmas time and they came back they came back kind of with a bit of money to spend and they wanted to implement change in 2021 right it was, it was this this year with covid was a bit of a kind of like you know new year fresh start type type piece mm. and a number of those conversations um organizations had kind of gone out and they'd asked for different people and, and they talked to you know, and, and you have those pre-sessions with them and it's really interesting because they're like yeah we really want the capability build we really want like we really want onshore co-located because like that's the only way that we can build quickly and that's the only way that we can build talent and we really get it and we love the model and we really love and right and then you go through the whole process and they end up going completely left field with a completely different option or a different approach. <laughs> Offshore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I was talking to the person on my team and I was like, and then he had another call last week and someone was like, yeah, yeah, but I spoke to them and they really want this. I was like, yeah, but everyone tells you they really want that, right? They wouldn't they wouldn't have put you in the process or have that conversation. They didn't want you. Mm. And actually it was quite fascinating because um, we made a connection with someone that I know kind of personally from school actually who works in a similar field and he dropped me a text and said oh i see we're both in the mix for this one particular rfp <laughs> so we said yeah, yeah yeah i hadn't i hadn't kind of clocked it and then we went through the process and then he texted me afterwards like oh we didn't get it did you and i said no we didn't get it either let's let's kind of like compare notes and it was interesting because that's the first time that i've openly yeah. spoken with someone else that went for a piece of work and it was quite interesting because 
they'd had exactly the same experience that we'd had. So mm-hmm. they'd had a good session with one of the individuals. They'd been told they love their model. They love what they're doing. They love the approach, all that kind of stuff. They went for the pitch. The main, the main person, the CIO, hadn't turned up to their pitch mm. and hadn't turned up to our pitch, to our, to our presentation, which, you know, with hindsight, if, if the main person doesn't turn up, that's, that's a big sign that they don't really care what, you know, mm. you, you're, you're already out of yeah. the game or, or they don't really care. And then the feedback that they were given was, um, yeah, it, it was basically counter feedback. So they were like, well, you know, they, they told us that we were too kind of expensive and unsure. And they were told that they were too kind of like, you know, specialized. And it, it was just, it was just it, like the feedback was quite interesting. Right. Yeah. And I think, and, and then my reflection to, to, to my team was like, I don't think we were ever in the mix. I don't think we ever were. Right. There mm. was, there was someone at a certain yeah, level yeah. who had decided that he wanted, you know, he wanted either X or Y and procurement said, well, we have to have, you know, Z and Z and um, T in the mix. So they'd kind of gone out and they knew about us and, you know, maybe, maybe if we come out and blown them away and done a better job, maybe, but I think, mm. I think it was, stat- it was stacked against us from the start. So that, that kind yeah. of qualification piece, I think is pretty key. I think that, I mean, I absolutely detest RFP processes <laughs> for that very reason. I was going to jump in with the same thing. It's just, <laughs> it's awful. I don't know. Well, someone has, someone has decided what they want, right? Yeah. They, they've decided yeah. in, in perhaps potential isolation what they want. And then they're coming to market and saying, give me, give me what I want, right? And I, I sometimes think, though, like doing a like the worst RFPs that I've ever done have been government RFPs. Oh God! Where you know, it, it, honestly, you can spend a couple of days, frankly, answering a government RFP, filling in a load of questions, and then they just go, no, nah, no, thanks, and you don't even get into a into a conversation. Like I feel like if I can get in a room with someone, I can generally convince them one way or another. Um, the problem is actually getting into those spaces. And I think especially if you were a smaller organization, like obviously I was going from from the Magic Milestones perspective, it was so small, like either you'd heard about us and knew we had a great reputation mm. or you'd never heard about us and you were going to call us Magic Mushrooms or Magic Moments or something else. Um, you know, so <laughs> I think it depends on whether you've got that, um, the the gravitas of a, of a name behind you. Um, but yeah, I hate feel I hate RFPs, especially in RFP form, because you're absolutely mm. right. Somebody has already made a decision there, mm. and I suppose if if you have the key decision maker isn't showing up, um, you know it doesn't matter how great your meeting goes, because the, the person you met with probably genuinely thought that you were the right decision to go for, but they didn't have the authority of actually making that um, making that decision. But I just hate RFPs. Yeah. When it comes to RFPs, then how do you balance? Because an RFP is saying, "Look, we we know what we want." It, it sort of sets up a vendor partnership as opposed to a supplier, yeah, su- a supplier rather than a, a relationship. And and um, can and find its place in an RFP, given that you want to have form a partnership as opposed to be a supplier. Yeah, yeah. I think we can because I think I think you know RFPs are in many ways, an effective mechanism for, for looking at individuals on, you know, organizations, sorry, on a kind of even keel, right? So they're mm-hmm. like, they're, 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 they are, they are, they have, they have their place and they have their purpose. And also, you know, there are a number of organizations that that's just, that's just the rules of engagement, right? Like mm-hmm. you're never, you're never going to work with certain organizations without going through them. So I think, 
I think there are, and to your point in government, like that's that's just the law, right? So there yeah. is there is there is there is law around it. So I think we've we've started talking about kind of you know like learn to love the RFP, particularly in our public sector team, because because that's just that that's just the way of engaging. Mm-hmm. I think. So I think there are certain situations where it can it can you know not stop you from having a partnership. Mm. It, it isn't it isn't you know it isn't always indicative of a pure supplier piece. Mm. I think that's just some of those organisations have to go through those motions. Some organisations also you know they don't actually kind of understand fully what they want, and that's mm. just how they that's how they work with other people. So whilst they might start that way, I think you can always you know you 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 can build a partnership. Yeah. I think the challenge is for us as an organization is, you know, a lot of agencies typically are just, you know, nine times out of 10, they win their work from RFPs. And that I think is something that we've learned as well is that we don't, we don't do a lot of them. You know, we're not amazing at them. Right. And I think there are organizations that do nothing but RFPs and mm-hmm. they, their, their whole approach to BD is about nailing the scoring, nailing the criteria and walking into a room and nailing a 45 minute presentation in a meeting, right? And they will do that and they will have, you know, experience and skills and they'll have the people that, you know, they'll have three people who are awesome at tech and awesome at presenting that can go in and wow decision makers and they'll have someone that can speak procurement's language. Now, mm. like, does that mean that they can deliver a great product? Maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but there are organizations that yeah. are geared around nailing that process and we're not one of them so we won't we'll, we'll never show the best the best foot i actually think that it's um that they're geared to not deliver a great project because frankly i can see when a, you know you, you guys are in a similar position to actually where sam and, and i would be on on these sort of things like quite progressive quite forward thinking on some of these things i've i've gone through rfps before and you're reading through the questions or the segment sec- sections in an rfp and you're going they don't know what they want. Mm. And actually what they're prescribing here is going to give them a bad solution that they will mm. not they will not want to look after, maintain, etc. And so as you're filling it in, you're going, well, I can't win this RFP because this is the... Fundamentally don't stand by it. Yeah, it's the opposite of what I would recommend. Yeah, so I think, I think if it's... Um, I think if it's a very fixed, you know, we want a quote. We want a we want a proposal to build exactly what we expect and do it that way. Then I think that is that that is very tricky. If it's a case of you know we are we're going to market to find our partner to build this broad product with us, and we want to understand the right you know commercials and the models, and then mm. we'll get into the detail once we've once we've kind of gone through the process, which often is the case, right? Often you get those you get those kind of pieces where. You're almost kind of, it, it's it's the hurdle to become the partner. Yeah, I think if you do those, then 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 it works. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I agree. If it's a very and it just doesn't fit us, right? Like there mm. are we're all about collaborative working, co-locating when we can and 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 where we do and and and, and always have done and always will do. Right? We're UK mm. based and we solve relatively complex technical problems. We are we are not we are not the best partner. If you want to write a spec and then see us in four months when it's built, there are other organizations that can do that much better than us. So that yeah. I think is almost kind of it's it's knowing your strengths and knowing where you, and, and knowing where you're best and where you're not and qualifying out. It would become a game otherwise, wouldn't it? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna win this RFP and then we're gonna get in and then we're gonna change it all. <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know yeah. that would, uh, but that's too much game playing for me. 
(laughs) (laughs) Thanks for your time, Will. That was a really good conversation. Yeah, yeah. It was really good, really good to catch up. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Thanks. Take care, guys.